to look at Mark chapter 15, 21 to 39, uh, but our sermon text will be verses 33 to 39 in particular. Mark chapter 15, we'll read verses 21 to 39. Give your attention now to the Lord's holy word. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, and the other on his left. So the Scripture was fulfilled which says he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with Him reviled Him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's holy word. May he bless its reading to us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, these words narrate for us the very event upon which we have staked our eternity. We are grateful as we worship on this the first day of the week that we do so in the confidence and triumph of a resurrected Christ. But our God, as we consider the death of our Lord, as we consider what happened in that mysterious, glorious transaction upon the cross, how we pray that You would, as the hymn says, dissolve our heart in thankfulness and melt our eyes in tears. Lord, how we pray that we would gaze upon our Savior with faith, 
and that the result of our afternoon worship would be such greater love, such more fervent devotion, far greater consistency in faith as we look to our Savior who was wounded for us. Bless now this preached word, we pray, for our sake and for Jesus' glory. Amen. Both preaching after lunch isn't more difficult enough. I also begin a sermon in the worst way possible, reading to you a rather lengthy quotation. Uh, I do so from a prayer from a little book published by the Banner of Truth called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. This one in particular brings out some of the substance of what we need to understand about the crucifixion. I'd ask you to think about this as I read and especially pay attention to all of the contrast, what Jesus did that we might have something quite different. And here's what the writer says about this situation that he calls love lusters at Calvary. He says, there thy infinite attributes were magnified, and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due, and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. A thirst, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Made a shame, that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness, that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept, that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. Groaned, that I might have endless song. Endured all pain, that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorny crown, that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head, that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach, that I might receive welcome. Closed his eyes in death, that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. Expired that I might forever live. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou might spare me, all this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Ian Murray wrote a little booklet about the cross, and it's entitled The Cross, The Pulpit of God's Love. And as we look at the cross this afternoon, I want to meditate upon the second portion of our mini-series today on the Gospel of Luke or Gospel of Mark. We looked this morning at the sufficiency of Christ, the person demonstrated in his uh, willingness to identify with sinners, demonstrated to us in his approval by the Father and his victory in temptation. But I told you, children, especially there are two parts. What is the gospel? We talk about the person of Christ, but we also talk about the work of Christ. And what we have before us in Mark 15, 33 through 39, is really the culminating element of Christ's work. All of his life led up to this great moment where he would offer up his own soul as a sacrifice that he might purchase an eternal redemption. 
Now, I told some brothers earlier, I served for some time as an army chaplain. I've uh, always been, as some of you know, uh, quite the extrovert. I don't struggle talking with people. And part of that means I talk with a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of people in my life. And sadly, I've, in my area in Royston, I've talked to people who profess to be Christians, who have something terribly wrong in their outlook. And I've come to this question many times, and I say, well, what do you know about Jesus? And often, most of the time, their initial response is, well, he died on the cross for our sins. And many people know that as a principle. But I ask often this follow-up question, why did Jesus have to die to save us from our sins? Or what is the connection between Jesus' death and our sins? And you know what the most frequent response I've gotten to that question is? I've never thought about that. And friends, if you've never thought about that, you're not a Christian. If you've never thought about the relationship of your sin to the death of Jesus, the Son of God, you're not a Christian. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus dying for sinners. And it's our task this afternoon to look at this event and to Bring our heart to this very reality that we might know something of the death of Christ, the Son of God, and what it took for us to have a hope of salvation. And we're going to be looking at the end for some implications of this. And there are many, but we'll only look at two. What I want you to see from Mark 15, verses 33 through 39, is that it took the death of the Son of God to open the way of life for sinners. It really did take the death of the Son of God to open the way of life for sinners. And as we work through this, we're going to be looking at it from various perspectives and what happened and what was going on in this whole interaction. The first thing I want you to see from our text this afternoon is that the darkness of God's judgment descended upon Jesus. I want you to see how the darkness of God's judgment descended down upon Jesus. We read in verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, and this is after Mark has already reiterated to us or uh, communicated to us that it was the third hour, you see in verse 25, it was the third hour when Jesus crucified or was crucified. And what that means, children, is that at about, in our time reckoning, about 9 a.m., Jesus was affixed to that cruel instrument of execution that the Roman corrupt mind had developed And there he hung suspended above earth and under heaven for three hours, being mocked, being derided, suffering with intense agony. And if you remember, we talked about Christ's temptation this morning. Don't ever miss the fact that Satan is still behind the words of ridicule and temptation to Jesus. If you're the Son of God, come down from there If you don't think that's a temptation, you don't understand. This is Satan whispering again. And the glorious thing is, it's because Jesus was the Son of God, he wouldn't come down from there alive. He had work to do that his Father had sent him to do. And yet, when it comes to the sixth hour, and this would be high noon, 12 noon, when the sun is high in the sky, blazing in hot Middle Eastern heat, darkness descends over the entire land. Now, some unbelieving, critical scholars want to say that this is some sort of either a lie or just a very conveniently uh, timed uh, solar eclipse. It's nothing of the sort. 
When do you remember, do you, children, can you remember a time where uh, darkness of judgment preceded a great work of redemption? Uh, just as we talked about Noah this morning, you should get that connection very clear. The ninth plague that God brought upon the land of Egypt, darkness descended upon the land of Egypt so dark and so heavy it could be felt. And that was what preceded the death of the Lamb of God and the release of the people of God from bondage to sin and to their master. Don't miss the parallel. This supernatural darkness descends upon Christ, descends upon the world. And this was a terrible darkness. And I think, well, we, we're not going to be able to examine all the mysteries of this interaction, of this, of this transaction that was occurring on the cross. But what was happening is, on the one hand, I believe God is veiling. He's covering what's going on where His Son is enduring hell on the cross. And it's, it's notable, I heard this in a sermon years ago, that the most momentous things that God has ever done have been done where the human eye has not witnessed it. Creation was done before anybody saw it. The incarnation, the conception of Christ in the womb, no human eye saw it. This darkness, blackness descends. And then shortly after, the resurrection, where no human eye saw it. God is doing these things, friends, to put to shame those who are proud to lay those low who think highly of themselves. God is veiling what's happening, but this is also a sign that God's judgment was descending on Jesus Christ. The judgment that Egypt deserved, the judgment you deserve, it was coming down on Jesus, who would have been and should have been the Goshen where there was light, but He Himself was filled and covered in total darkness. This darkness descended upon the Lord Jesus in judgment. But you also need to understand that as that was happening, it was the fierceness of God's wrath that descended upon Jesus. In verse 34, we see that at the ninth hour, so this is happening for three agonizing hours. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But So you have a total there that Mark accounts for a six hours of Jesus enduring hellish agony in body and soul. And during these hours, Jesus is actually personally, vicariously, that is, on someone else's behalf, enduring the wrath of God. And this is what brings us to one of the great mysteries of the gospel. Six hours on a cross. How could six hours on a cross amount to an atonement worthy enough to pay for an eternal hell, for however many sinners for whom Jesus died. So each one of us owe an eternity to God, and yet Jesus was able to pay in time a punishment that we could have never exhausted in all of time, even when time is not measured as we measure it now in eternity. How can this happen? I can't provide for you a systematic theology of how that works. But what I can encourage you to do is to meditate much upon it. To meditate upon the worth and dignity of Jesus Christ, one of such glory who's able to endure in His person temporally what we can never pay in eternity. Robert Dabney writes about this mystery on the atonement. He says, a stick of wood and an ingot of gold are subjected to the same fire. An ingot of gold is like a brick of gold. So you have a stick and you have this brick of gold gold and you put them into a fire and Dabney says 
The wood is consumed permanently. The gold is only melted because it is a precious metal incapable of natural oxidation. And it is gathered undiminished from the ashes of the furnace. But the fire was the same. And then the infinite dignity of Christ's person gives to his temporal sufferings a moral value equal to the weight of all the guilt of the world. This is what was happening on the cross as Jesus became the curse bearer, the wrath endurer. And it's during these dark hours in Mark's accounting of things that Jesus cries out. And he cries out, saying these words that perhaps for some of you strike you as odd, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, transliteration of the Aramaic that Jesus would have been speaking almost certainly. But what that is, is a quotation. Why did Jesus say these words, translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is being communicated here? Well, first I want you to understand what is not happening. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no rupture of the Godhead. There's no separation of Father from Son who, from all eternity, one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. You can't dissolve the Godhead. Okay? Jesus is not ungodded, if you will. And yet what he's saying is something profound. How could the Son say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean that the Son was forsaken It means that the Son who only and always and ever enjoyed the smile of the Father would then receive something other than that perfect bliss. The wrath of the Father. Not in a capricious hatred, but in just dealing. Taking my place. Taking the place of God's people. What Jesus is doing here is expressing By way of the psalm, Psalm 22, which we'll read in a second, not all of it, he's expressing exactly what he was experiencing. He was giving articulation, according to these words, of his experience, body and soul. He is experiencing everything that hell was. The remarkable thing, though, is Jesus Christ, who is called in Revelation the faithful witness. He's not merely giving articulation from the Psalms about what he's experiencing. He's also bearing witness to the people of who he is. Psalm 22 is a psalm that was universally recognized as a messianic psalm. Now, quite honestly, all the psalms are messianic psalms, but some more clearly than others, just as all mountains are mountains, but Mount Everest seems a bit more mountainous than the other ones. But Psalm 22 It begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? And you can imagine Jesus thinking these words, perhaps singing these words, groaning these words as he's enduring everything that this very psalm prophesied about him. You see later on in verses 7 and 8, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. All of these verses are speaking about this exact experience. And if I could just make one small application, thankful you all sing the Psalms, I love singing the Psalms. Uh, 
As you do so, what you will learn, well, this is what I've told people. You've perhaps heard that reading half a Bible makes half a Christian. If you don't read the Old Testament, you can't be a mature Christian. I think not singing the Psalms and becoming acquainted with the Psalms makes you uh, liturgically uh, immature. The the Psalms give you an ability to articulate uh, lament and grief and sorrow and joy uh, in the right way. And I would urge you to continue in that, but to make those things not a point of contention and argumentation, but of devotion. Just as our Savior even did here at his lowest point. Here's what Jesus is enduring as he's enduring the very darkness of God's judgment descending upon him. He's crying out, expressing what he's experiencing, but he's also bearing witness as to who he is. And as this is happening, dear congregation, I want you to see, secondly, we looked at the darkness of God's judgment, but secondly, I want you to see the desecration of God's temple. It's interesting, the desecration of God's temple As Jesus is suffering, he is suffering as both priest and sacrifice. You remember, he is the faithful high priest who enters into the presence of God, but he doesn't offer up blood for himself. He brings his own perfect, untainted blood. And if you remember the stipulations required for going into God's presence, God's presence was a place where death was not to be found. You see, God's presence was to be full of light. And uh, it's a remarkable thing here that Jesus is now, as the high priest, in the presence of God, actually given over to death. So we first see in the desecration of God's temple the death of the priest. And this happens in the midst of mocking, in the midst of misunderstanding, where people are around him mocking him, laughing at him. Now there is, uh, as some writers have said, there was a kind of a Jewish urban legend that righteous sufferers, if really righteous in their suffering, would be rescued by Elijah. Elijah, as you know, was taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. And so they thought, well, maybe this would be someone who would kind of come back like a superhero and rescue people who were suffering who shouldn't be. And so uh, the people standing around, they're not, they're not actually interested in showing mercy to Christ. They're interested in preserving and prolonging his life to see if something amazing was going to happen shows, again, the hardness of these people. And as he's being mocked, as he's being misunderstood, as he's surrounded by the most hardened of sinners, Jesus is crying out. And this is one of the things, as we'll see later on, when the centurion is is watching this. This is one of the things that marked Jesus apart very, very much from, from others who were crucified. Now, understand something. Crucifixion was by no means unique. That Jesus was crucified was not unique. He died a death of a common criminal. He died a death like many others had. But there is nothing unique about the one who is crucified. That's what makes it different. Not the cross itself, but the cross of Christ. Or the Christ who is crucified onto that cross. And so his death is different. His actions on the cross are different. He cries out not in curses, but he is Bearing witness, he is giving articulation, and his death is very different as well. And I want to show you some aspects that make his death very different. Most of the people who died by way of crucifixion, some of you maybe have learned this, you did not die if you didn't die in the place leading up to it with the scourging and the beatings. Usually the person would die either of exposure or of asphyxiation, suffocation. They they couldn't breathe anymore. And nobody 
nobody who is dying the death of asphyxiation can cry out with a loud voice. It just physically isn't possible. And so we actually see that Jesus here has residual strength that the common criminals wouldn't have, which is why Pilate was so amazed that he had died already. It took a long time for people to die. Jesus did not die in that sense in weakness, but actually in strength. You also need to understand Jesus' death is unique is that he did not die involuntarily. Jesus is no helpless victim here. He's a voluntary sacrifice, giving himself over. He said in the Gospel of John, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down that I might take it back up again. This is what Jesus is doing here. And with that in mind, you need to understand that Jesus was not overcome by death as a drowning person is overcome by waters. Jesus entered into death. He gave himself up to death. He gave up himself unto death so that sinners deserving of death would live. You also need to know that Jesus did not die because he was a sinner, but for sinners. This is the great scandal of the gospel. This is the great scandal of the cross because death is the consequence for sin. Jesus experienced in both body and soul all that death is so that sinners might be brought to life. Friends, this is, this is the key. Don't ever be caught with the question, what does your sin or what does Jesus' death have to do with your sin? Don't ever say, I've never thought about it. It has everything to do with it because without the death of Christ, you are liable. You're culpable. You will be called to an account. The Belgian Confession, one of the Reformed Confessions, says this, So he, that is Jesus, paid back what he had not stolen. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous in both his body and soul in such a way that when he sensed the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he endured all this for the forgiveness of our sins. It took the death of the priest here, there in the holy place before God. But don't you see, secondly and relatedly, the death of the temple? Because it's interesting that we have a scene change in the midst of one of the most uh, remarkable sections of all of human literature. Well, it's divine literature, isn't it? Look at this scene change. There's this strange situation where they're thinking about Elijah, they're trying to get out. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he breathed his last. And then we have a scene change in verse 38. Then. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the people at the cross would not have been aware of what happened at that very moment in the temple. Remember, Jesus didn't get crucified in the temple. He suffered outside the camp. He was outside the city. So he's suffering out there. But Mark's saying, meanwhile, over here, here's something that happens. The veil is torn. The veil is torn from top to bottom. Now, the temple veil at that time, this is almost certainly the inner veil that was the the guardian to the Holy of Holies. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, who was a converted Jew and wrote much about um, culture in those days and different situations, he mentions that the veil itself would have been 60 feet by 30 feet and four inches thick. A massive piece of fabric. A massive piece that, that you, you don't, you probably tried tearing a t-shirt. It's very difficult sometimes. But this, this massive piece of thick fabric, which was there as a guardian 
torn in two like a sheet of paper from top to bottom. This veil which was interwoven with those cherubim, you remember cherubim placed at the gate of the Garden of Eden to keep man out. Remember the cherubim who are there as guardians of God's holiness to keep men out. Understand this, the veil is there not to keep God in, but to keep man out. And it's that veil that's rent. Now arguably, as this happens at the ninth hour, that's the hour of the evening sacrifice. It could have been, little speculation, it could have been even at the moment that the priest is there offering up the afternoon sacrifice. Can you imagine what a man would think about when he's there in the holy temple of God and the veil is split in two? And in fact, he's probably the first witness to what happened. He would have come out, certainly would have told people. This is a calamity. This would be a complete defilement of the temple. Do you know why? Because God is saying, in the death of my son, the offerings in this temple, the death in this temple, they're done. I have no more need of this. That's what he's saying on the one hand. But he's also saying that in the tearing of this temple, the veil which was there not to keep God in but to keep sinners out is being torn not to let God out but to let sinners in. This is the testimony of the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, as the writer there reflects upon these glorious truths, he says that we have boldness for an entrance of the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, not the old dead way, not the way characterized by death, but the new way characterized by life, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. The rending of Christ's flesh and the letting out of that life-giving blood is what opens the way, and the veil itself was just proof of that. The old way is gone, the new way is open, but I also want you to see that this is a divine opening. It's torn not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, showing that God has come down, God is torn, God has opened the way for sinners to come into life. And so in the desecration of the temple, the death of the priest, the death of the temple, there we see life offered not to the Jew only, but to the Gentile, to all of the world. And this is where we come to this dramatic end of this text, where I want to tie together not only this text, but how it connects to our text from this morning and then make some applications to us all about some lessons from the cross. We looked at the darkness of God's judgment, the desecration of God's temple, but I now I want you to see the declaration of God's Son. The declaration of God's Son. Look at verse 39. So when the centurion... So we've done a scene change to the temple, and now we go another scene change back to the cross. It's very deliberate, and I want you to see why. So when the centurion who stood opposite him, that is Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the great confession of a Gentile. This is a man who would be, uh, in our modern language, a company commander, a commander of a hundred, almost certainly had witnessed many, many, many crucifixions. And so he knew by experience, by bloody experience, perhaps even hardened experience, what people acted like while on a cross. And he knew there was something different about this one. When he saw he cried out like this, like what? In the way he gave up his own life, he then makes a great confession. He makes a confession that all the people who preceded him in the Gospel of Mark have missed. Here is the Son of God. This is the great question of the Gospel of Mark. Who is this Jesus? Who is He? 
So many were confused. So many are confused. And Mark highlights this in a remarkable way. Do you remember what I said this morning was one of the proofs of Jesus being an all-sufficient Savior? When he is approved by by the Father, when the Father declares, this is my Son, he does so after a supernatural tearing, a tearing apart of the heavens that no man could do. And the same exact word is used here for the tearing of the veil. And what you have is the Gospel of Luke is bookended by this glorious reality, a rending of divine capacity with the declaration of the Son, and here a rendering of divine capacity top to bottom of the veil, and a centurion, a Gentile saying, this is God's Son. This is the only Savior. Unsearchable depths as we look at the cross of Christ. What does this all mean? Well, I've said it took the death of the Son of God to open the way of life for sinners. This is the cost of forgiveness. This is what can be underneath and behind and motivating your prayers when you have sinned and you ask God for forgiveness. You know, some people will say that if we offer free forgiveness and assurance Uh, of faith, that it'll lead people into a life of lawless living, antinomianism. And if you have anything to do with this Savior, you'll know that can never be the case. Why would you continue to go back and to sin willfully in the face of a Savior who has done these kinds of things, this very thing, to deliver you from the bondage of sin and to pay for the penalty of sin? This is what you need to keep in mind as you ask forgiveness, as you confess your own sins, as you plead with your God for mercy. This is also, though, what happened in order to provide satisfaction for us and peace. Now, peace is a word uh, that we use probably a good bit. But what is peace? I've told my congregation many times, we can't confuse peace with the absence of open hostility. Uh, I was looking before we came up to Lynchburg about some interesting things to do in Lynchburg, and I I think the Appomattox Courthouse isn't too far from here, is what one of the websites said. But if you remember that uh, scene there uh, some 160 years ago, 158, I guess, or 68, uh, would you say that it actually brought peace to this country, what happened in Appomattox? No, it might have stopped, sort of, the uh, fighting that happened, but it didn't bring actual peace. But what the death of Christ does is it reconciles sinners to God, but you need to remember it reconciles also sinners to sinners bringing actual wholeness, violently obtained by the blood of Jesus Christ. And let me apply this very particularly uh, to this congregation. Friends, I know your situation, and we've been praying for you. And I know that there are times, and this is a season in this congregation, where there can be division between brothers and sisters who love one another. And let me encourage you, sadly in my experience, I have found that Reformed Christians, when they get to this part where there's differences... It's like we forget the gospel. It's like we forget that Jesus died for sins. We might confess it. We might have the greatest confession in the world, and we do. But then when we need to forgive brothers and sisters in the Lord because we've sinned against each other, it's like Jesus never died. Don't be like this. Jesus has died. And this death, this shed blood, is the basis upon which and the reason Brothers and sisters at odds with one another might love one another, cover sins in love for one another because of Christ's sake. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just saying this is what you need, friends. 
Let me apply it this way. Believe the gospel. Actually believe it. And live as if it's true. This is what Christ calls us to. Covering over sins. Even if you've been wrong, you feel like you've been wrong, cover them over for the sake of Christ. This also calls us, though, to wonder, doesn't it? I've said before that preaching on the cross, it's like homiletically walking into the Holy of Holies. How does a sinner speak about the things uh, that angels long to look into? John Murray wrote about this very text, about this very place in Scripture. We are but touching the fringes of the mystery of God's will. And we should be aware that thought and word fail. Here we have unsearchable wisdom, facets of revelation that pertain to ways past finding out. But it is only as our feeble minds become engaged with this mystery and we seek to explore its depths that we catch glimpses of its marvel and we exclaim, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. When your Christian life seems to languish, when your uh, devotion worship seems to deaden, when your heart seems to grow cold to the things of God, return to the love lusters at Calvary. Return to the God who is willing to shed blood to save sinners not worth saving, humanly speaking. And let these things stir you up to love and wonder, praise, and holiness. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the full salvation, Jesus, and for the cross. Our God, we've lived so far below the privilege of a knowledge of our Savior in this way, and how we pray that you would renew us to greater zeal, a greater desire to forgive and to receive forgiveness when we have sinned. Lord, how I pray that the peace of God would rule in the hearts of all in this congregation and that your name would be gloriously honored here for Christ was shamefully treated. Our Lord Jesus, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, was mocked and gave himself to death. So Lord, we pray that we might have life and that we might show life abundantly. Please do this for His sake, for His glory, and for our everlasting good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.